there, you delightful lot, and welcome to another episode of Fuds on Film. I'm Drew Tavendale. With me this evening, Mr. Scott Morris. Hello. And those who are regular listeners may be aware that this is our second podcast of the month, which is usually our compare and contrast slot. We're not really doing that this month, although it did occur to me before beginning preparing for this podcast and looking at the list of films which we're going to cover, that maybe we were in fact comparing and contrasting the good films that John Carpenter made, of which there may only be three, all of which we covered in our last episode, and everything else. Now that's before I watched the films, so I guess we'll find out whether that's true or not. Seems a harsh thing to say about arguably his most influential work, and also the only one that got anywhere near an Academy Award. But such is life. Yes, I'm not saying that I'm following through with that feeling, but I am saying it is genuinely the feeling I had before beginning. As I was saying to Scott before we began recording, I was very much struggling to muster any enthusiasm for most of the films we were what to be watched for this episode. So. To be fair, you're not wrong for most of them. <laughs> yes, I, um, yes. Spoilers, but yes, I I didn't find myself dissuaded from my notion much. But I, I guess we'll begin. Is there anything? Do want to particularly say about this group of Carpenter films, Scott, before we begin, or just move on to talk about them in specifics? And not in particular, obviously. I think we covered what either we in particular or the larger world thought of as the essential Carpenter joints in our last episode and spent a bit more time with them. I think this lot are mostly minor works that we can probably skip through. Again, there's a few outliers, that uh, uh, one of which we kind of covered in a previous podcast and uh, the other one, of course, being Starman, which uh, does at least deserve a bit more consideration. I would say the rest of this... While many of them have their fans, they're minor Carpenter works, and I think most of them just don't quite stand up to the rest of his body of work. Yeah. I just a quick recap on what we did in the last episode, if you've somehow missed it. Uh, we suggest that's the one where we're certainly going to have the most enthusiasm for the works of Mr. Carpenter. And in that, we covered Assault in Precinct 13, The Thing, The Fog, uh, They Live, uh, Prince of Darkness, and... Well, Big Trouble in Little China, Big which didn't really China, count. Yes, and Escape from New York, <laughs> yeah. yes. And now three of those, um, I think, are generally excellent films. They live... The other ones that I, I love so much. Like The Thing, which is my favourite <laughs> Carpenter film, and The Song Piecing 13. And I, I actually do feel those are probably the only three good films he's ever made. There are a couple of alright films, I and mean, we'll get to the, one of those, but... Yes, I suppose we should probably talk about it, and I know a lot of people are probably screaming at their podcasting <laughs> device of choice, I'd say, Drew, you're an idiot, you have no taste. I, of course, would strongly disagree, and think it's the other way around, but... Uh, you have taste, it's just bad taste. My taste is impeccable <laughs> and superb. Yes, now, we're going to do these in chronological order, and obviously skipping over the ones we did in our last episode. So we begin with John Carpenter's directorial feature debut, which is Dark Star. A science fiction comedy, allegedly, from 1974. So, Dark Star. There's this small crew of kind of... Bums. Bums. Hippies. Kind of last of the hippie, um, hippies coming out of the 1960s and the early 70s who are aboard a small spaceship 16 or 18 parsecs from Earth Three years pre-Star Wars, filmmakers knew what a parsec was. George, you were not paying any attention, were you? <laughs> and their job is to explode rogue planets that will 
at some point spiral into their son because this was an important thing to do. To be honest, I'm not quite sure what the point of their job is other than it gives them an excuse to have a talking bomb. And yeah, kind of misfit crew, one of whom isn't even supposed to be there. And yeah, I'm not sure what to say about Dark Star. It's a film where people try to be funny and aren't, try to be weird and are, and there's a beach ball with feet that takes up far (laughs) too much screen time. (laughs) It's a rather inauspicious um, feature debut. It certainly betrays its low-budget origins very well. The the effect, special effects aren't. It's a pretty ugly film. And that's not necessarily a problem for a filmmaker starting out. Unfortunately, just to me, it doesn't display any inventiveness or any wit. And as we'll come back to in a couple of these films, John Carpenter can't really do comedy. Yeah, uh, it's... I don't mind this film as much as, as you do, but I don't particularly like it all that much either. Um, I, I still think it does look a little bit better than its $60,000 budget would have you believe, but yeah, certainly not rivaling uh, Lucasfilm in the FX states. That whole pet alien being, you know, escaping and running through the ship thing, which goes on forever, at least they did of co-writer Dan O'Bannon did basically rewrite that into Alien. So it has something of a his- nerd historian uh, sci-fi <laughs> thing going for it. But I think other than that, it's probably not a great deal worth going back to. I, I think it has some charm. Um, it's got enough kind of gentle jabs at the whole kind of Star Trek 2001 thing that if you're a genre fan, you may get some joy out of it, but it's eh, it's by no means essential viewing. Uh, O'Bannon was lamenting that he was forced to basically expand this to, what was it, nearly 80 minutes, I guess, uh, from a, I think, half-hour premise that it was at the start. And I think it is it is very much a decent half-hour concept stretched badly to 80 minutes. And it, it just showed that as being a little bit... Uh, it, it does kind of show, it seems, a bit... Yeah, hard to properly recommend, I think. I This is was a film I'd seen before, but a long, long time ago. And... My memory of it was that it was not very good, and my other memory was that it, at some point it got cross-referenced somewhere in the back of my head or parts of it with Spaceballs. <laughs> now, to be honest, that's not doing a disservice to either film because they're both awful. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're right in that it's for fans of the genre, you can certainly appreciate some of what they're going for. I mean, you can understand the, the things they're trying to lampoon. Yeah. But I just don't think it did it very well. Yeah, it's certainly not funny. Not which is, in the slightest. <laughs> yeah, there's only like one or two scenes that even got a chuckle from me. But uh, yeah, as a comedy, if you view it through that lens, it's a bit of a failure. It's a little sci-fi curate's egg for those that are interested in the genre. And it's probably worth recommending just for that basis alone, if you can find it without having to pay anything for it. But uh, it would be hard to recommend anyone actually go out and purchase this on DVD or Blu-ray or whatever the kids are using these days. VHS, Betamax, I don't know, one of them. The low budget nature, I suppose, is the one good thing because, at least as far as John Carpenter's concerned, this is a low budget, incredibly dull and boring film as opposed to, you know, (laughs) Silent Running, which was a really lovely looking, very expensive, really dull and boring film. So (laughs) I suppose it's every bit as dull as Silent Running was, but it cost them less money to make it. So that's good economics, maybe. (laughs) This is the one point it's got in its favour. Yes, it's uh, maybe for Carpenter completists, but it's not, it's not a good film. And to be honest, I don't even really see any real promise in this film. 
I wouldn't have looked at this and seen John Carpenter later by going, oh, I can see what he's going to go on to do. No, other than someone who can wrangle special effects, I know they're not particularly expensive or well done here, but at least he can work that into a story just about, uh, mm. which I, I think is some of the films in this list that will be, I think, a, a reason why he was hired for some of them was like, you know, he seems to be a director that's competent with putting special effects in a story and not having it completely overwhelm the other. That's perhaps the only thing you could take from it as a as sort of the, the evolution of his craft. Absolutely, especially when you consider that the next film he did was Assault on Precinct 13. It's like there, there, there's no shared history or shared <laughs> yes, it's ability a between the two. It's a, it's a <laughs> heck of a jump in, in every way. And like, to the point where it's like, I saw in Precinct 13, as we discussed in our previous episode, an excellent film and genuinely well-crafted. And all. But what happened in those two years between those films? Yeah. <laughs> but then, and only another two years after that, though, we did come to the film which made John Carpenter's name. I believe this will be the one you were mentioning earlier, Scott, that came close to an Academy Award for the very little that might mean. No, no, no? that's Starman. Is um, it? How really? Okay, I, yes. I haven't bothered doing any research on this at all, because to be honest, <laughs> I didn't enjoy any of these films, no. apart from Starman. I didn't really want yeah. to look into it that way. Yeah, so that was two separate films, but I think unarguably Halloween is his most influential film, what he's ever done made in that. Um, oh, I think so. Again, we covered this kind of more fully back uh, a year and a bit ago, I think, uh, in our 70s horror podcast. But just briefly, in the off chance you haven't heard of it, uh, it's where a young Michael Myers uh, is seen in an introduction stabbing his sister to death and then it cuts to 20 or 16 years later, whatever it is, with him escaping from a sanitarium and Dr Loomis, uh, Donald Pleasance, is sent off to advise on how they can possibly recapture this monster. Myers heading back to Hanfield, his hometown, and uh, basically stalking and killing a number of young girls, one of which, of course, of course, being Laurie Schrode, Jamie Lee Curtis, who's been a, uh, returning to the franchise for 40-plus years now. <laughs> so it's basically... The Ur Slasher film, um, it did a lot of things that were quite innovative at the time, like having a kind of first-person perspective. Um, it's quite notable going back and watching it just the other day that almost nothing happens apart from the, you know, after the introduction. You've got a whole hour where it's just tension building up in tension, and that's something that Carpenter can do quite well, as we've seen with uh, various other works that we spoke about um, in the last podcast. At this point, I've now seen Halloween enough times that it's hard to really get a lot from it. I don't think a lot, a lot of people love it and watch it very frequently. I don't really get anything more from it, but it, it, as a sort of historical document of what came to rule the genre up until the kind of postmodernist reinvention with Scream and such like that, basically every horror, every slasher film uh, after Halloween really ploughed the same furrow that uh, John Carpenter digged in this. It's got that incredible score, which is probably Carpenter's uh, uh, most famous. It's I don't think it's going to change anyone's opinion of horror movies. If you don't like horror movies, I don't think this will change your mind. But it, as a sort of stripped-back execution of one, this is as clear uh, an example as you can come up with. And while I, I say I'm not a horror guy, I don't love horror genres, so I don't have all that much affection for Halloween and certainly none of the films that followed it, this seemingly never-ending series of films that they're making, I can at least understand why people love this film. I think it's highly unlikely that anyone with any interest in the genre hasn't already seen this. But if you do, then of course you should see it. So it's got that going for it. <laughs> this, I didn't actually get an opportunity to re-watch this podcast um, because 
unfortunately, this is even a, a hint of hyperbole. I have had two hours of sleep in the last 48 hours and I was falling asleep watching other Carpenter films for this and I never got around <laughs> to watching to falling asleep during Halloween. But I, this is one of a handful of horror films that I saw at an age when I really ought not to have been watching it. Yeah. <laughs> I have the feeling this would have been probably a late night Channel 4 thing. Yeah. And I can't remember exactly when I watched this, but I have the suspicion that I may not have even been into double digits of age yet. Mm-hmm. So really, ought not to be watching. And Nightmare on Elm, Nightmare on Elm Street was another film. It's exactly the same I watched when I was far too young. And mm. unlike almost all other horror slasher films I've ever seen, they've stuck with me. Yeah. Now, again, I don't know if that's because of the craft of the film or the age. Maybe both. I, I do have the feeling that once you're beyond 12, films simply aren't scary anymore because it's <laughs> for me, they aren't unless they're the omen. And that's not scary in the same way. But I do find that some of it is striking. It, it is it's um, an archetypal film, Scott. You're absolutely right. And I, I, don't, I don't... It's so long since I've seen it. I remember so little, but from that very first viewing, the when the moment when he murders his sister, mm. that I've never ever forgotten that. I can close my eyes and see that scene perfectly mm. because it's such a shocking scene. Yeah, and it's so effective too, establishing the tone of the film and the character as well. So, without having seen it in any recent time to say whether it holds up at all, it's certainly in worthy of the term iconic it's a horribly overused mm. word but i think halloween certainly is one there's a couple of carpenter films that are worthy of that term and this is another of them yeah but still my current working hypothesis is that as soon as you're not a teenager anymore there is no such thing as a scary film and i've seen nothing to dissuade me from that theory so that's what i'm going with but <laughs> certainly it's a well-crafted probably not scary anymore film that's my ringing endorsement yes. of it <laughs> Yes, and uh, there's a few more horror films that we'll speak to, and none of them are remotely scary, so... Well, <laughs> it's given, given the next one that. is um, a Stephen King film, so therefore impossibly scary and probably incredibly bad. But <laughs> yes. <laughs> that one with the car. Uh, well, there are many Stephen King films with cars, but I suppose at least this one doesn't have a Green Goblin truck and um, a, ma- a magical meteorite <laughs> making them come to life, but it may as well have done what I recall of Christine. <laughs> yes. Yes, Christine, set in the late 70s, textbook geek Arnie Cunningham, played by Keith Gordon, finds himself inexplicably drawn to beaten up old 50s Plymouth Fury, and to the surprise and consternation of his family and friends, he buys the rust bucket and devotes himself to fixing up a car that, spoilers, is haunted, or (laughs) at least has a mind of its own, like a psychotic Herbie. Um, As Arnie grows increasingly obsessed with the car, his manner and demeanour changes entirely, like a psychotic Fonz, while the car, Christine, spends the off hours murdering anyone who had slighted Arnie previously. Um, it's based on Stephen King's Frankly Silly book, and this is Frankly Silly. <laughs> Even bearing in mind that Britain's a bit less of a car-obsessed culture than the States, expecting haunted car to scare <laughs> anyone beggars belief. Uh, d- despite that, or perhaps because of it, I kind of liked Christine. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I've seen this before. I know I've read the book when I was a kid, and it was hot garbage um, but this sort of leans into the garbageness of it um, uh, the practical effects work is actually pretty good again one of the Carpenter hallmarks he, he knows how to do this kind of thing pretty well That's re- as convincing as a self-healing car can be um, uh, and I, I kind of liked the hammy cheesy performances from well everybody in it it's, it's just 
it's handled quite cartoony. Uh, it, it leans into the ridiculous nature of it, which is enough to make it fun. Again, as long as you take none of it seriously whatsoever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely not essential carpenter material. But uh, I did enjoy it way more than, say, Big Trouble in Little China, for example. So you can make of that what you will. I'm not sure if I did fully apologise to Scott. In which case, if I didn't, I will now. I'm very, very sorry, Scott, and I certainly apologise to our listeners too that. I am not well prepared for this film because I, or this podcast, sorry, I didn't watch a great many of these. So I've not been sleeping well and then my weekend being wiped out with unexpected happenings that I've not watched a lot. But I think I have watched Christine in the past, but remember almost nothing of it. So I have nothing worthwhile to say. But from what you're talking about, Scott, <laughs> it's, it does sound like that leading into the the ludicrousness of the setup is probably the only way mm. to go. If you take this at all seriously, it's just going to be intolerable. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that was the what's happened with the production of it. It doesn't seem like it's taking anything particularly seriously. I'd be, I'd be mortified if it actually was, because if people were taking this seriously, if this was Carpenter's serious attempt to scare people with a haunted car, then it is awful. Uh, but if you think of it as being a bit of a, a bit self-referential, then it's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, it's just such a, a ridiculous high-level concept that I think it kind of works just on a, the basis of it just being a daft, almost parody of a horror film. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you mentioned Herbie, and that was actually was in my head too, um, thinking about Christine. It's like, yeah. It does sound like it's just a slightly more adult version of The Love Bug and all of its sequels. <laughs> Herbie is what comes to mind. Or is it Stephen King does The Love Bug. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yes, I'm glad they're not taking it seriously. I'm sure the book is incredibly poor-faced and meant to be taking itself seriously. Oh, yes. And yes, from from what I recall from like twenty years ago, I guess, um, yeah, the, the book does take itself incredibly seriously because it's a Stephen King work and is therefore well hot, hot garbage, garbage, as you mentioned yes. earlier. Yes, <laughs> yes, with all of Stephen King's trademark neologisms and trademark terrible, terrible writing. Now, I'll give that the man can produce an interesting plot. And there are a few films based on Stephen King films, although typically not horror, that um, I find very enjoyable films. But he can't write that plot for Toby. <laughs> no. Yes. Yeah. But we move on to a film that I have seen because I didn't... I mean, obviously I hate Scott, which is why I wanted him to suffer all of these films alone, but I don't know him entirely, so I did watch some of them. <laughs> hey, uh, it's not Uwe Ball, so... No. Everything's a step up. Yes. <laughs> Establish a baseline. <laughs> I suppose that I have let you down here, Scott, and that I said I was going to do this podcast with you, whereas I refused point blank to do the UV ball one, because unlike you, I don't have a terrible problem with self-loathing. Um, <laughs> I just have a problem with Scott-loathing. <laughs> but yes, Starman, which I remember watching a long, long time ago as a child. Remember being a bit more science fiction and a bit more magical than actually is, but also was really surprised to find because I don't think I was ever aware of until very recently that it was a John Carpenter film. It's one that sort of mm. passed me by that this was a John Carpenter film because it doesn't feel or look like a John Carpenter film in many ways. And I suppose that's testament to the fact that the man does have some ability to turn to other genres. So Starman is a weirdly young-looking Jeff Bridges, possibly even younger-looking than he is in Tron from two years before. And absolute aside, but he looks so young and I think I'm just so used to seeing... Jeff Bridges from The Big Lebowski onwards that when I see young Jeff Bridges at all I'm just horribly, horribly reminded of Tron Legacy and I just don't think he looks real Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes 
Jeff Bridges is an alien. He comes to Earth having received the message of greetings and a basic welcome to Earth. Come see us sometime. Why don't you drop in for a cup of tea? Uh, that was sent in the, with the gold records aboard Voyager 2. In this case, a Voyager-influenced alien hasn't come to consume everything and desire a carbon unit. Mm. He, he's just come for a wee, a wee look and a wee chat. But because every single military person, particularly US military person and every science fiction film ever is an asshat, they decide that when this probe approaches Earth, the important thing to do is to kill it, kill it dead, kill it to bits. <laughs> this they attempt to do by firing missiles at it from a fighter jet and he crashes in Wisconsin, where he lands near the house of Karen Allen. Her character Jenny is a recently widowed, well, widow. How <laughs> 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 uh, I sent this construction is so great when I've had no time to prepare. Uh, he lands near her house, sort of floats in an incorporeal state to her, her abode, sees some pictures of her dead husband, uh, Jeff Bridges, and takes the form of Jeff Bridges, passing quickly, uh, and I mean in a matter of minutes, through stage of incorporeal being Quato from Total Recall, <laughs> the fairy thing from Legend, uh, adolescent boy, to Jeff Bridges in a matter of minutes. Uh, she kind of, well, loses her mind, weirdly enough, to see that... Um, <laughs> A deformed baby has grown into the spitting image of her dead husband in a couple of minutes. And then he, well, he kidnaps her, really. There is no other word for it. He basically forces her to drive him to Arizona, where he has to get picked up in three days, or his people will leave him because, yeah, I have issues with this film. (laughs) (laughs) One of which is... Yeah, I suppose there's not an awful lot more. It almost becomes a road trip at that point, uh, where Karen Allen and Jeff Bridges' characters get to know each other as they travel across the country trying to evade the military police um, that are after them. And I don't really think I'm doing the film a disservice by saying that plot-wise, there's not an awful lot happening in it. Yet, I really quite like this film. I think um, a lot of it has to do with simply the quality of the actors that Carpenter had on hand. Mm. Jeff Bridges in particular. Karen Allen, this is just, what, three years after she really made her name in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And there's real chemistry between them. Jeff Bridges plays it sort of half-serious, half-goofy, which more or less works for the most part. And I just find it an enjoyable ride. I don't think it's saying anything particularly important or useful. It's one of those films that claims it It gets to the end and Jeff Bridges says, do you know what makes your species so special? You're at your best when things are at their worst. And I, yeah, you know, that sounds really good, but the film has shown absolutely sod all of that. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's only really shown humans at their worst without showing anything good coming out of it, beyond maybe um, Karen Allen's overcoming some adversity. But uh, for all that, I enjoy it. And it's got a quite appealing soundtrack. It looks nice. It's certainly, it feels a bigger budget film than a lot of Carpenter stuff had up to had up to that point um, feels more polished and and I'm wittering now I'm aware of it but so I was trying to work my head back into what I was saying which was that the issues I have with this are more genre issues than anything else because it's so common that it must be some sort of article of faith that this would actually be what the military would be like but every single film with a visiting a, a, visit, a visiting a visiting alien like this has the same 
military general or whatever he happens to be who just wants to kill everybody that this alien must be a threat and he's entirely unreasonable and won't accept any explanation or anything different. <laughs> and, and every film like this has exactly the same character. And it really must be an article of faith that the military is like this for real. And I honestly find it hard to believe they are, but I certainly hope not. That every film like this has exactly the same character and they never change. And nobody ever tries to subvert that at all. From this to everything that came before, even to things like Paul. Paul did even try to subvert that it just had Sigourney Weaver be that character that you've seen a thousand times before mm-hmm. so with that and the problem is like it's not really showing that humans are good even though it tries to say it but it's um it's a fun road movie with Jeff Bridges playing just the right side of not taking it too seriously I don't know I'm wittering now I like this film which is more than I can say for any other film in this podcast, but <laughs> Scott, take over for me, please. I know. You know, there's other films I would defend more than Starman. I I hadn't seen this. This is one of the, well, perhaps one of the only reasons I decided what to do this podcast because <laughs> I hadn't seen Starman, so I thought I'd give that a go because this is the this is the Academy Award mentioned. Uh, Bridges was nominated for an Academy Award here. Well, that seems wholly inappropriate, but again, the Academy uh, Awards have bear no relation to reality, <laughs> but. I've got to say, right, the film is basically predicated upon that relationship between Alan and Bridges, and I didn't really like Bridges' performance in this. Um, and I'm not 100% sure why at the minute. I think I think you're probably hitting on something when you say you, you thought he straddled the line between sort of which being just goofy enough, and I think I thought he went a little bit too goofy. Um, I thought it, would, it did kind of undermine the rest of it. I see why the choice was made, but I just d- didn't get along with it for the most part. Not enough to really spoil the film overall, but it, it didn't quite sit right for me. It was a bit sort of cut-rate Mork and Mindy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't argue with that. Um, I really can't, but it's... Um, yeah, it's still, I still find it reasonably enjoyable. I, I don't mm-hmm. disagree with a single thing you're saying there. Um, uh, but, I mean, that aside, I did still enjoy the film quite a, quite a bit. It's a very well-put-together road movie, so it's got all that kind of stuff going for it. It's very competently put together. If I remember rightly, this film had been sort of stuck in production hell because it was for a while because the script was out there. It was about to be greenlit. Um, they were about to start production on it, and then ET came out, and everyone went, "Ah, f- this is the same <laughs> script." <laughs> <laughs> so they had to go back and uh, refocus it a bit, and I think Carpenter actually decided to focus less on the sci-fi elements and more on that relationship, which is probably a good thing overall. It gives it a bit more longevity than if it was just some sort of sci-fi effects spectacular sort of deal, um, and it's it's at least thinking to ask questions about humanity that would get him to the point at the end where he thinks that humanity's at its best when it's at its worst. But I don't think it does a particularly good job of explaining it. This film just really shows that most humans are twits. And, and very occasionally you might find a good one, but uh, that shouldn't really be enough to stop the planet getting blown up. <laughs> yes. Um, there are there are other structural issues I have with the film too. I mean, again, it's enjoyable. It's not by any means a brilliant film. And... It, it's become a road movie, yes, and you say it does focus much more on the relationships and kind of learning about human interactions rather than the sci-fi element of it, mm. um, which is maybe just, they just abandon everything else, more or less, because they say, right, I've got to get to this place outside Wimslow, Arizona, um, with that massive meteorite crater that's there, in three days. Why? Because if I don't get there in three days, my species will 
um, leave me here to die. Why? Um, quick look over there. Yeah. But, but can you tell them where you are? You've already demonstrated at the beginning of the film that you can communicate with them. You told them where you were and that you'd been <laughs> shot down and also that it was hostile, but they're going to leave you to die anyway. No, really, quick, look over there, something shiny. I also might be misremembering it, but I could swear at the end of this, uh, Bridgie says that, no, his species had been there many times previously. Yes, and all he does that. say that, yes. Yeah. Um, so so why frame it with the Voyager thing at the start? It's it's a silly twist, if anything, to put in, because it's not really a twist, because, uh, you know what I mean? It's weird. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had exactly the same thoughts, Scott, so I'm glad it wasn't just me that that <laughs> um, kind of rankled with, yes. Because like, they start off in with the... I've forgotten the guy's name. The guy that plays the SETI man, Sherman, guy that's Oscar in The Untouchables. Mm. And he's saying, yeah, we're basically to the obviously unreasonable military general, whatever he is. Or, is he a politician? He's a general? I'm not sure. But And he says, yeah, we basically we invited him. Oh, no, no, we've just got to kill him because of um, being an alien. That's what we do here. And... Oh. Standing Order 66 or whatever it is. <laughs> oh, thank you for reminding me of the prequels. Now I remember why I hate you, Scott. <laughs> uh, Star Wars prequels now. Yeah, it's, um, so yeah, he's saying, yeah, we invited him here and it starts off with the Voyager thing, but then at the end, it's like they forgot at that point. Oh no, we've got to go here because this meteorite strike is actually evidence that we were here before because we happen to have this enormous, perfect mirrored sphere that fits perfectly into this hole in the ground. So forget mm. the whole Voyager <laughs> thing, it's irrelevant. Uh, yeah, it's it's a bit mixed there. I think it sets the idea out to be that you know, humans are really aggressive and unreasonable and there's the the scene with the deer and we're supposed to think that the guy that comes out to confront Jeff Bridges about the deer is this aggressive, horrible redneck. But you know, Jeff Bridges basically stole his lunch. Um, <laughs> and possibly his livelihood and if he's actually talking about selling that meat earlier maybe he legitimately hunts to sell things so he feeds himself and also makes some money so you know he's probably quite reasonably pissed off with Jeff Bridges for <laughs> um, getting rid of that deer so this that doesn't work particularly well so yeah it's it has structural issues but I think for the most part Bridges and Island carry it yeah yeah um, I still think it's definitely worth watching um, I, I guess I'd hoped uh, for more, given the sort of reputation uh, that it has, but yeah, I still can't say that I didn't like it. So yeah, we take what we can get, uh, particularly <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> yes, and particularly given what we're going to move on to now. Yes, I mentioned earlier, I don't think John Carpenter does comedy very well, which is probably why he cast Chevy Chase in this next <laughs> film because he also can't do comedy very well, you know, or at all because Chevy Chase isn't funny or engaging or in any way charming or appealing to watch um, so it's good that he tried to make another comedy with um, Chevy Chase in Memoirs of an Invisible Man Yes, um, in this Chevy Chase vehicle wait, no, come back um, <laughs> he plays Nick Calloway, an ungrounded businessman whose life gets flipped turned upside down when a freak accident at a lab he's visiting sees him along with half of the lab turned invisible this puts him on the radar of Sam Neill's David Jenkins, a ruthless CIA spook who wants to control Nick, seeing the obvious uses for an invisible man in the spy game Nick goes on the run helped by his initially freaked out love interest Alice Monroe, played by Daryl Hannah who must of course be used as leverage by the CIA at some point because there's not really an original plot beat in this entire movie. Um, now, strangely enough, I wouldn't say I disliked this film, but it's a really odd film, both for Carpenter and Chase. It's 
a more serious script and performance than you'd perhaps expect from Chase. Uh, but at the same time, it's difficult to take it seriously because, well, it's Chevy Chase, <laughs> zany alleged funny man. It's also maybe the least carpentery carpenter film. And I suspect, as I kind of hinted at earlier, he was bought on board purely as someone who could wrangle the special effects side of things, which I think are mostly competently done. Even by today's standards, it doesn't look absolutely awful, which you might expect, uh, given the march of technology. Sam Neill, Michael McKean and Stephen Tobolsky and the supporting roles are decent value for money, but the central arc is little more than fine. And I expect you'd find your attention wandering should you choose to watch it, which isn't something I'd necessarily recommend that you do. Yes, I can absolutely confirm that your attention will wander. Um, <laughs> in fact, <laughs> mine went off so long that I had to call the police and put in a missing persons report for my attention because I had no idea where it had gone by the end of this film. Yeah, it's too well produced to say that it's like a straight up bad film. For me, the problem yeah. was just it was just straight up boring. I, I couldn't. I couldn't quite understand for a long time if it was supposed to be a comedy or if it was supposed to be serious or if it was supposed to kind of stride some sort of line between them, but it kind of winds up not really being one or the other. And <laughs> yes. it's, it, it's got a bit of an identity crisis in it. It's quite difficult to kind of really wrap your head around what they're aiming for, I think. Yeah, that's fair. And I was going with how it's listed on things like IMDb and it's listed under comedy and I'm like, like yep but it's definitely not because it's not funny and that's yeah. how you know whether it's a comedy or not because I didn't laugh at all <laughs> um, and, and I kind of knew it because well Chevy Chase isn't funny I mean obviously he's not Steve Martin but he's not that far away from that I mean, he delivers his lines competently enough but that's the only positive thing I can really find to say about him <laughs> some of the special effects yeah they, some of them aren't brilliant but there are others that are I quite find like the scene in the rain when the rain outlines his body, even like fairly subtle things like that, work pretty well. Yeah, there's some shots in here that I don't think you could do much better today with the maybe the inside of his face thing is actually quite well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, And there's some other like the the actual clearly practical set that was built for the half demolished library or laboratory. Yeah, (laughs) I, I I was kind of looking at that though and thinking. Geez, that's an awful lot of work for not a lot of return because it's, it's an awful lot of work and it's in the film for about two minutes. Yeah, like, this, this doesn't seem worthwhile. So, I suppose the special effects are good, but mostly just bored me. Again, yeah, it has that problem of is it meant to be serious? Because the idea of somebody being invisible could be kind of tragic, actually, and it, it almost hints at that in a few places. Yeah, but then it's like it tries to be funny game like that really painfully awkward bit with the drunk man in the back of the taxi it's it's not funny and yeah then it's part of uh, it's the tail end of that probably decade long conspiracy theory or rather conspiracy to try and make people believe that Daryl Hannah was in any way attractive either intellectually or physically that I never understood during the 1980s but they kept trying nope I never bought that at any point. No, Daryl Hannah is just, well, can't act and isn't attractive, so doesn't work in this film in any way at all. <laughs> I mean, I can just about, and I was going to say I can just about buy her as a, some sort of freakish evil replicant, but actually, no, but that's, not, that's probably um, another thing I really don't like about Blade Runner. I think she's terrible in that, so no, Daryl Hannah's awful. Actually, Daryl Hannah is a sword wielding killer and kill Bill, is about the only time she's actually. A watch your presence. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I, I've got to try and stop being so negative because this is another episode that's turned into here are all the things I dislike. But <laughs> <laughs> There's no chemistry between these people. They are people that are there and then this story happens and I don't know what it's meant to be. Comedy, drama, tragic comedy. And yeah, it's, 
it's such a, a nothing film. It is there. Yeah, I think in particular, in the, when we're talking about an arc of Carpenter films, this is barely a Carpenter film and probably doesn't even deserve consideration in that one. Um, if you are interested in sort of Carpenter's work, this is po- perhaps the least essential. It is almost not Carpentery at all. So it's it's easily visible. It certainly should be at the bottom of your list if you're going to actually watch any of his work. Now, I think there are worse films that he's done that we'll talk about, but this one in particular just will feel so little like a John Carpenter film that there's no point watching it through that lens. No, in which case there's no point in watching it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here's where, and I'm sure you're all saying praise be, is where I shut up for a long time because I've not seen any of the next four films. Um well, one I've seen a long, long time ago. But Scott's basically going to monologue for a bit here. Yes. Uh, starting with In the Mouth of Madness, which I believe was the film that Craig decides was described as gash. So, uh, with apologies to the Google summary of this film, uh, Sam Neill plays an insurance investigator who is tasked with investigating the mysterious disappearance of a Stephen King-esque author named Sutter Kane, played by Jurgen Prochnow with quite the silliest haircut. And he is accompanied by the novelist editor, Linda Stiles, played by Julie Carmen, to track him down to the small town that he reckons he has gone to. And as soon as they get there and check into the hotels, weird things start happening and it all goes a bit uh, some, somewhere between Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft as it turns out that uh, the author is indeed writing his own reality and the stories are becoming real. Or is it just Sam Neill going insane for no well-explained reason? One of the two, both of the two, is hard to say. The framing devices that you kind of meet Sam Neill in the uh, asylums, just as humanity is breaking down and all sorts of crazy things are happening off camera of course uh, you don't get to see a lot of it um, and it goes on to do a bunch of really a strange mixture of incredibly standard horror jump scares and some quite outlandish things uh, as well uh, the whole thing feels more like a david lynch film than a john carpenter film except a, a david lynch film that doesn't really understand what a david lynch film is I don't know. There's Some people really quite like this film. I'm just more... Some people really hate it. I'm just kind of baffled by it. Uh, it's. I don't think you could possibly say that it's a good film. Um, it does too many things. The whole plot of it is just abject nonsense. And because of the way that it's structured, it's one of these things where just things happen after each other. They don't need to have any kind of causal relationship between each other. It's, it's all just a bit... Uh, and then what happened was, and it goes into something else, it's just trying to create little vignettes that are supposed to be scary. And some of it works, some of it doesn't. But... The overall effect is, if nothing else, really interesting. It certainly kept my attention much more than a lot of the other films that we'll talk about. I don't know if I could possibly say that it's good. It's really hard to recommend something when we got to the end of it and just kind of went, eh? (laughs) And I'm not sure I I, I liked it enough or was intrigued enough to go back and watch it again to kind of work out which side of the fence whether I should really like it or really hate it. So... (laughs) Tough to really give much of a recommendation on, but I will say this is I found it absolutely fascinating by watching it. It is a daft, daft film, uh, but I quite enjoyed it. I shall just crash on to the village of the damned. 
and a film that took me an embarrassingly long amount of time to realise was an adaptation of The Midwich Cuckoos, given that it's set in a town a town called Midwich. But anyway... Um, <laughs> oh, dear. I thought the cover what? makes it really obvious it was The Midwich Cuckoos, but oh dear. Uh, well, Having a bad night for you. <laughs> didn't see the cover, so... Um, Christopher Reeves' small-town Dr. Alan Jaffe and epidemiologist Dr. Susan Werner, played by Kirstie Alley, struggle with revelations after a mysterious event, sees the whole town population blackout simultaneously, after which ten women become pregnant, and they give birth to eerily similar platinum-haired kiddiewinks that, uh, over the years, we discover have psychic powers and have a hive mind of sorts, and are, surprise, surprise, somehow alien in origin and character. After understandable tensions, the kids exile themselves to a barn, while the villagers make ready to kill them, pitchforks and all, which goes about as well as you'd expect when going up against people that can control your mind. It's left to Chaffee to res- resolve this situation and also decide what to do with his sole child that so shows some humanity. Uh, this was Reeves's last role before uh, his paralysis, and he tries very hard, along with most of the cast, to find something new in a script that's barely distinguishable from the British film some 35 years previous. Now, remaking films was a, as bad an idea then as it is now, and I, overall, I guess I don't hate it. Contemporary critical reception of it was dire, and it was a complete commercial belly flop, even among carpenter terms. Uh, so I guess not a lot of people <laughs> found an awful lot of joy in this, and I kind of agree with that assessment. Uh, it's just not interesting in the slightest, which makes it really hard to recommend on an entirely different level from In the Mouth of Madness. Uh, so yes, I shan't uh, read the book or watch the 1960s film instead. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I've lost track of where we were. It'll be Escape from LA, LA next. I don't know if you've. Okay. Yes, I uh, know. Uh, Escape from LA, I was half tempted to. Well, again, I, I may have got around to it if I'd watched all the other ones I intended to before running out of time mm-hmm. and sleep. But this I have seen and remember little beyond the surfing and <laughs> um, the fact that I thought it was very, very bad. I did consider revisiting it uh, to see if it is, but given when I watched Escape from New York, which I always remember being the clearly superior film, and I now think that Escape from New York is absolutely fine and nothing more. <laughs> I, I didn't have a lot of enthusiasm anymore for coming to this. So, um, but you did watch it, Scott, for the first time, I'm guessing? Yes, yes. A film set in the dizzying futurescape of 2013. You know what? I don't really have an awful lot to say about Escape from LA. It's, in terms of plot, it is basically the same as Escape from New York, but in LA. The president's daughter goes missing after stealing uh, some super weapon or something like that and falls in with a uh, dangerous pseudo communist populist Che Guevara type. And uh, in almost identical ways, the original Snake Plissken is. Brought in, arrested, and told he was given he'll be given his freedom if he can just just hop in in a incredibly bad CG submarine to, <laughs> to the, the now um, sunken well half sunken island of LA to rescue him from the various freaks and geeks that inhabit the place, um, including the likes of, of Steve Buscemi as the the cabbie equivalent and uh, Bruce Campbell's frightening Surgeon General, which is quite some of the strangest prosthetic works that I've seen in it. Basically, it's like the parody version of Escape from New York, and again, I think it's probably intentional. It's it's leaning quite heavily into the sort of absolutely cheesy, daft aspects of it, but 
uh, it just manages not to be enjoyable in the slightest. Um, it, it's it's not funny. It's not exciting. It's not interesting. Um, you've seen more or less the same film before, but better. <laughs> Escape from New York. It's it's hard to get around quite how bad the CG is. <laughs> it, it's almost. I mean, even for the time, this looked awful, and revisiting it just looks absolutely terrible in a way that others earlier works didn't like um, and things like the Invisible Man film uh, looks much much better than Escape from LA <laughs> yes Diff is an ugly looking film it's just full of things you've seen before but seen better the only good thing the only thing I could have liked without any uh, qualms was Pam Greer's performance which is far too short to really save the film uh, but yeah, one of the few characters in it that I actually found in some way endearing and the rest of it yeah I would think you can probably just skip yeah, not recommended to anyone <laughs> which I think is probably more or less what your memory was saying of it yeah, this, um, yeah. my memory of it is not strong but you see it's like pretty much every register for it is filled in with this is like Escape from New York but less yes <laughs> <laughs> less everything Yes, uh, it's not one I intend no. catching up with anytime soon. There's a no. couple of these that, um, even after this podcast, I may go and look into. I want to see in the mouth of madness? I might rewatch Halloween um, just to see if it has any effect to me emotionally mm. um, nowadays. Um, but yes, this one, not so much. I think. Um, yes, um, and. Sadly, from this point on, it's varying degrees of downhill. So if you if you like positive messages in your films, uh, then you can probably just stop at this point. Um, uh, as, as a spoiler warning, yes, none, none of the rest of these films are worth watching. Uh, the, the next one in this chronological list is Vampires. Yeah, so this is a film that expects you to have sympathy for James Woods. So that's a stretch to begin with. Yes. So uh, did you like From Dusk Till Dawn? Would you like to see more of it? In which case, watch that again and don't bother with the <laughs> pile. Uh, yes, as you say, this is James Woods' play of all, of all people, uh, playing vampire hunter Jack Crow, out for revenge against the powerful vampire master, Thomas Ian Griffiths' Jean Valek. What done killed most of his team and that, uh, with the exception of his best friend, Tony Montoya, played by noted non-Latino Daniel Baldwin. What a dream team. <laughs> The Vampire Lord is after some MacGuffin that will make him more immortal somehow or something, um, and our heroes must stop that coming to pass via automatic weaponry, wood stakes and sunlight. So often the best detergent. Um, unsurprisingly, James Woods fails resolutely in pulling off the character, looking way too flimsy for the tough guy character he's vocalising, which makes the whole film a bit laughable. He's neither old or grizzled enough, nor young and arrogant enough to fit with the way it's written, and he's borderline unwatchable. Now, I will say this, from this film, I did like the snarling feral vampires, which has since been stolen by many better films, uh, but in this film, the action is not all that compelling, and all of the supporting characters are barely noticeable. Worse than Ghosts of Mars, somehow. <laughs> I'm as surprised as you are. Um, yes. This film didn't interest me at all. Beyond, um, I did get a hold of it, started skipping through the video, and then saw that Daniel Baldwin's character was in and um, I completely misheard the name at first and um, read it as Tony Montana Yes, which would have been a much better film <laughs> well, It would have been better had it been Tony Montana but, um, yes. with um, a full on um, Scarface performance but uh, 
it's like, it's like really Tony Montana they're like come on you can't like, oh right it's not that okay but yes, <laughs> I was left with maybe a, a lingering wondering of what could have been <laughs> say hello to my little crucifix <laughs> okay uh, then we move on to Ghosts of Mars an incredibly terrible and ham-fisted effort at trying to relocate a Buffy the Vampire the the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode to Mars is that in terms of quality of script, um, special effects, everything except I think at least Buffy the Vampire Slayer had charm and some charisma between characters, none of which is evident mm-hmm. in Ghost of Mars. Uh, after a setup of what Mars is like in the future, including that it's run in the matriarch as a matriarchal society, yada yada yada. None of which has even the slightest relevance for anything that happens in the film. Yeah, when that comes up I thought, oh that's interesting, I wonder what we'll do with that. Nothing. Nothing is what we'll do with that. Absolutely nothing is what they do. Exactly. Um it's irrelevant. Um we are introduced to Natasha Henstridge's um lieutenant Whatever name not worth bothering about. <laughs> uh, who is an attractive but utterly character-free woman who is just whose main purpose seems to be to be the object of unwanted sexual advances from both her superior and junior officers. She's the sole survivor-ish of some sort of horrific event that happened at a mining colony or mining depot somewhere on Mars, and. It's told in flashback from the point of view of her being in front of a military tribunal and she explains that she went to this place and they found that all of the people who worked in the mining the mining mines that's what they're called (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I do not work well um, without preparation I'm so, so sorry All the miners have become possessed by uh well, ghosts, presumably going by the the name, but I don't really know what they are. Um, and it's not really displayed well. And the, they take to murdering people, chopping off their heads when they're not mutilating themselves. In a way that almost seems reminiscent of the Reapers in Joss Whedon's Firefly in the film Serenity, except they were actually interesting and well done, whereas in this film, well, nothing in this film's interesting or well done. So... Yeah, that's it. There's these ghosts that have taken over the people and they try to attack them and it's kind of like a really, really bad version of Assault Precinct 13 with mm. people in terrible prosthetics. And so I'm sorry, I really struggled to see anything about the film because the idea is that they've gone to collect Ice Cube, who's a criminal. Who His character's a criminal, we say. Not, not Mr Ice Cube no, himself. Sorry, sorry, yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, Mr Jackson, yes. Uh his character's a criminal and they think he's responsible for these deaths and they get there and they find out, well, no, he can't be. Um, it's the ghosts. The ghosts mm. what done it. Um, <laughs> and then they have to escape. And it ends. Yeah. It's, it's weird. And the most remarkable thing about this film is that Jason Statham has hair. Um, I'm not even joking. It's the most memorable thing about this film that I saw two hours ago. Um <laughs> Jason Statham's got hair in it, and I'm thinking, wow, it's a while since I've seen Jason Statham with hair. That's weird. Um, <laughs> this is the same year as Snatch, or the year after Snatch, and he didn't have hair in that. Hmm, I'm tracking Jason Statham's hairline. Hmm. <laughs> uh, even normally dependable, and not always good, but certainly charismatic, Jason Statham can't save this film. Mm. Um, it's so dull. 
nothing interesting happens, barely anything happens at all. It looks terrible. It looks so cheap and nasty. There is no story, there are no characters, there is not a hint of charisma in any of the cast, and then a nuclear explosion happens and it ends until Ice Cube turns <laughs> up with some shiny guns and a really terribly delivered line. Yeah. Not uncommon for Ice Cube, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, um, said, I know that Ice Cube, certainly, uh, the standout is obviously Boys Note. He can do some stuff, he is capable of a good performance. It's just, I suspect that's the exception rather than the rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jason Statham has hair, although not a lot of it because it's Jason Statham, and there are a couple of stupidly shiny guns. <laughs> that's it. That, that's the entire um, film. Yeah, uh, I agree entirely. I'd make maybe a slight case for the defence of Pam Greer again. I think she's the only character I had any sort of slight interest in. But of course, she gets killed off almost immediately. So yeah, the rest and of it, off screen too. Yeah, and the rest of it you're left with. Um, yeah, uh, strangely non-charismatic. I think is the character is just bad for uh, poor old Jason Statham, uh, who's who you would normally expect to excel in this sort of environment. Um, there, there's a probably like a fag packet version of this that's actually quite a good idea you know somewhere like let's do escape from new york but with sci-fi zombies or something like that and <laughs> that's more or less what they're trying to do here except they just do it very very badly and, uh yeah just just don't care about anything that happened yeah, in it. this is it, it's sub doom um, that's doom which is film. saying something yeah, yes i'm um, not doing the video game it's like you know sort of demony things on mars and it's like oh oh crikey no no what are you doing yeah, I, mean, I suppose Pam Gear is the most compelling character, but she's still because she's sexually harassing her junior officer. She's not a likable character. That's true. <laughs> and then she's she's given remarkably short shrift because see she's killed off screen, and in about the first about fifteen twenty minutes or something. Yeah, um, I think the character just disappears at one point, and then and then it cuts to like, they ask Natasha Henstridge what happened to us. Oh, well, all I know is what Sergeant Jericho. Oh, I remember Jason Statham's character name. I don't know how I did that, but okay. Um, Jason <laughs> Statham's character, what what he told me. And then you see from his point of view for a couple of minutes and it's like, there's this one of these possessed um, people carrying a head. Oh, that would be Pam Cure's head then. Oh, that, that, that was quick. But she didn't last long, did she? <laughs> no. Okay, so what, did she have like four lines or something? And yeah, so the, the person who had the most charisma at that point in the film isn't in it for the rest of it. So, great. And I don't care about anything else that happens after that because it's all really boring, horribly shot. The most horrendous soundtrack of any John Carpenter film I've seen. Um, mm. Although not one I think he's responsible for at this time. Yeah. Um, just horrible, generic metal music. Terrible stuff. Um, mm. Looks horrible. <laughs> it's not even oppressively red. Um it's not very interesting to make Mars red but obviously what else are you going to do but it's more just oh this is really really dull red for all of it um, kind of flatly shot not interesting shots at all and all the lines are delivered really badly basically everything is bad about this film yeah yeah uh, tough to really get any kind of concept of what on earth they were going for I mean the, the, there's various films that we've spoken about that I'm not a huge fan of, but I know there is at least some people that will make a case for the defence of it. I can't remember anyone ever saying, oh, it's time we reassess Ghosts of Mars. Um, this is. Just- I do blame Tem Gushi for getting my hopes about this film a little bit, given how amused he seems to be by the idea of Ice Cube just running down the um, the lane between a set of buildings with um, 
two I think MP5s or something to small machine pistols in his hand and like, okay at least that might be entertaining no it's all for in about three seconds and it was as dull as everything else so, mm-hmm. you're a bad man Tengoshi yeah um, yeah yeah <laughs> not good so Scott do, are we going slightly worse or slightly better in terms of the terrible film that I know we're finishing with uh, well it's hard to say really <laughs> <laughs> the last film we're going to talk about bringing this sorry episode to an end is The Ward uh, and I don't know if this will be the last film that Carpenter directs but I hope that it isn't because this would be quite the bum note to go out on um, it's set in the 60s with Amber Heard's Kirsten admitted to the titular psychiatric ward after burning down a house only to discover that things are not what they seem death stalks the halls in the most cookie cutter slasher way imaginable uh, with the loud orchestral stab backed jump scares being so predictable that even someone who has never heard of this film has already seen it which is a great time saver as it's certainly not worth watching uh, particularly given a twist that's signposted a mile away and is surely completely obvious to anyone who's seen any post 1990s horror um, I'd allowed a small amount of hope for this film as I quite like Jared Harris who's here seen playing a psychiatric doctor but he's not given very much to do at all in common with most of the cast who to be fair are doing as well as anyone could be expected to do with this level of script but sadly that is not very much at all and this is also eminently avoidable now it's wildly unsourced rumours but the, um, the, the rumours were that Carpenter himself didn't actually do much of a direction on this and it was left to the others and it's more kind of lending his name to the project I could believe that just because again it's so generic that it's very difficult to see that this is uh, anything like what Carpenter has done I mean look as bad as Ghosts of Mars was it did feel at least slightly Carpenterish at points whereas this feels like it is a film from an entirely different director even more so than something like Starman or Memoirs of Invisible Man this is very much a, a film that is take your generic horror movie script off the pile and to just <laughs> stick a name on it and it's doing absolutely everything you would expect absolutely every time you expect that it would there's not a single surprise in this and it again it, it just looks very boring and the whole film is just wildly uninteresting and yes it's such an obvious twist you've really got to you'd have to be blind not to see it coming it's absolutely terrible Yes, it's just a really bum note to go out and I won't belabor the point anymore and to say that if you've understandably not heard of the ward, didn't make a big splash upon its release and I think that's an entirely accurate way to deal with it. Um, it would be a sad sad end to the band's career uh, if this was it. Uh, this is just, this is bad in an incre- incredibly pedestrian way. At least Ghost of Mars, if nothing else, was something of a flame out. Um, whereas the ward is just conventionally terrible in a way that is exceedingly boring <laughs> and definitely not something you should be wasting your time with so it does seem that if we get to the end of this and combined with my knowledge of the films i've seen and with what you've telling me about the ones that i haven't seen scott uh i do come to the conclusion that actually john carpenter isn't a very good filmmaker and has only made three good films uh, <laughs> which a lot of people are going to disagree with and and because people seem to really like john carpenter but um, I am of the opinion that yeah he's not really that good I mean three films in particular that I really really like um, They Live, The Thing and Assault Precinct 13 we talked about in an earlier episode but for the most part the rest of them are at best okay 
Um, it's not a particularly good hit rate for the number of films he's directed. Yeah, no, I mean, watching them all back-to-back like this, I think if you just uh, limit yourself to the highlights, then there's a number of really enjoyable experiences that you could have with John Carpenter films. But yeah, I don't recommend mainlining them all in a row, (laughs) as I've been doing. Uh, Particularly, it's just just that stretch from... To a degree, Village of the Damned and all that escape from LA down, Vampires, Ghosts of Mars Wars. It's just such a tail off. Um, in the Mouth of Madness, you can disagree whether it's quality or not. It is at least interesting, but after that, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slippery slope uh, that he's gone down very quickly. You know, of, of the ones we've spoken about today, I mean, the, the best obviously was Halloween. I think, I maybe mean, not obviously, but I think the, the one that's most fondly remembered would have been Halloween. That's, again, a very early one in his career, and Starman still. Th- on the early side of things, and uh, uh, yeah, his later work is certainly not nothing like as compelling as his earlier stuff. Uh, you could pretty much stop him at about 1980, I guess, and you get, get more or less uh, all the joy you need out of it. 80s, about 80s pushing it a bit, I suppose. 90s uh, was probably where the rot set in. But uh, yeah, if you stop in 1988 with They Live, you're probably fine after that, I think. Yeah, to so yeah. ignore anything after that. Yeah. Um, We do have some people who have disagreed with us, though. Uh, We'll have a wee look at what they've said. Uh, Yes, well, I guess Michael Ristey uh, at Mikey Van B, who's from from the Films and Swearing podcast, thinks there were some fudging superb titles in that list, chaps. Uh, eh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And in relation to um, In the Mouth of Madness, I think this one was he's crying out for a decent release of that on Blu-ray, which, uh, again, it would be interesting to see. It's certainly a a visually arresting film in places. I I can understand why some people have a lot of love for that, at least. Stu from the Films and Swearing podcast uh, said, I watched Starman last month for the first time and I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. Jeff Bridges was excellent, that in the score. Uh, the scene where Karen Allen plants a kiss on the cop and thanks him, then Bridges follows suit and plants a big kiss on a beautiful moment. That I I did enjoy that moment. It's, it was kind of obvious that it was common, but I still really liked it. Um, it was played just right, that. So there's a few nice moments in that film. Nothing like outrageously funny or anything, but there's a few nice moments that just work quite well, and that's one of them. Yes. Uh, the exploding helicopter at Chopper Fireball. Uh, Escape from LA deserves a better reputation. No, it doesn't. Carpenter was making a sequel, but not in a conventional sense. The first film was straight thriller. This is more playful, exaggerated, and subversive. Yes, I do agree with that, though. Um, it should be understood in the same way as Robert Rodriguez's Machete films. Eh. Hmm, I, I, can, I suppose, well, the first Machete I quite enjoyed. The second one, Machete Kills, is okay for about 20 minutes. And then <laughs> runs out of ideas entirely after that point, and is an absolute drudge for the rest of it because it's. Yeah. it's, it's I mean, for a film based on a fake trailer, the fact it got <laughs> to a film and a quarter being good at all is incredible. But after that, the second Machete film is just really awful. It's really hard to watch <laughs> the end of that. Yeah, that was a tough gig. I remember that one, yeah. <laughs> Mistcast Entertainment at Mistcast Tweet said that In the Mouth of Madness is so underrated. Sam Neill is great, as always. One of the first mind films I've ever experienced. Yes, it is really interesting. I will give it that. It is one of the few films that I think I actually might wind up saying people should watch, even if you think it's going to be terrible, because at least it's interesting. Yeah, you know certainly, I mean? you've persuaded me that it's, that it's interesting. I would say that. Yeah. I actually came to appreciate Sam Neill quite late. 
But Sam Neill would be a, a reason I would go back and visit it. Uh, although if you really, if you like Sam Neill, the film you must watch is Dean Spanley, in which he yes. embodies a dog through the power of Hungarian wine. Um, and <laughs> it also has an amazing performance from the wonderful Peter O'Toole. So yes. it's... Uh, just an absolute aside from John Carpenter because most of these films we've watched today are terrible I've uh, <laughs> talked about today are terrible so let's just go into Sam Neill instead and another recommendation for Dean Spanley which is excellent from David that's at Davo UK Razorfist slash The Rageaholic has an amusing appreciation of Escape from LA on his YouTube channel now I must confess I don't know what the kids are talking about these days I don't know what a Razorfist is I don't know what a Rageaholic is I barely know what a YouTube is so I'll <laughs> I Razorfist sounds that. like one of those things I should look up on Urban Dictionary then immediately regret <laughs> <laughs> if any of those terms mean anything to you then uh, I, I suppose you'd go look at it I will try and find that myself later on but yes I don't know Razorfist, the Rageaholic, he sounds like an angry man. Oh, there's not many of those on, on YouTube. <laughs> and this is from at Blake Wrights from the I'm the Host podcast. I remember Ghost of Mars. There was an advertising budget, a lot of standing around, something about chrome-plated uses. If anything, that's over-remembering what you need to do from that film. Uh, part of the late 90s, early zeros fad, I think, of as washed-out colour. Bland shots, muted colours, harsh contrasts, Doom, Resident Evil, The Relic, Mimic. Not a good film among them. He thinks he might be imagining it, or maybe it was the film stock of the time. I'm just re-watching the trailers from that decade, and every big-budget horror has one harsh spotlight in the tense dark scenes and saturation cranked down in the well-lit areas. Halloween still reigns as a classic, though I'm of two minds about its effectiveness today. I wouldn't say Mouth of Madness is a good movie, but it was a fun movie, and it's definitely put some effort behind its attempt. I agree with both of those statements. And he doesn't know if he's actually seen Escape from LA. When I was young, both were available to rent, and I think I started with Escape from New York. Did I grab the same cassette twice, or were they just that similar? Well, yes, yes, they kind of are. Except one's significantly worse. I guess that brings us to a merciful end uh, this podcast yes um yeah disappointing really um i, just, I don't i mean it's, as much as it could be fun to tear into something it's not much fun when they're just the films are just boring but also i prefer to be enthusiastic about things if i can and this film or this episode rather i'm hugely lacking enthusiasm for most of the stuff which is a pity um but maybe we've done a public service and warned some people off of some of these films, Scott. If we save one soul from watching Ghost of Mars, I would consider my life a success. <laughs> Modest goals, but um, it's an important goal nonetheless. Okay, um, yeah, so that's it though. If you want to get in touch with us, and please do, you can do so um, by email, podcast at fudsonfilm.com on Facebook, facebook.com slash fudsonfilm or on Twitter, which is probably the easiest way. It's just um, at Fuds on Film. Yeah, that's it, I guess. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>